All right. Good morning, everyone, and welcome again to our, our second official and of hopefully many more regular in-person worships. Uh, praise God for a beautiful weather. I was thinking, man, if it's going to be sunny, I probably got to cut the sermon short, but it's beautiful. So I have no guilt. <laughs> I mean, what else are we going to do on this day? So we're gonna, I'm going to preach God's word. And as I was sitting there, I was especially thankful because I know like Zoom worship is not the business, uh, especially as a preacher. I like to see who I'm preaching to. And most of you guys turn your cameras off, but you can't do that today. So praise God. I, you have to look at me. I get to look at you. I also know for some of us, if we're being honest, this is the first undistracted time we're listening to God's word. Let's just be honest, right? Without the TV in the background, without the, the temptation of of multitasking, and so I'm, I'm very thankful, not that God's words hadn't been preached the weeks prior, but we are here, and I think there's a big difference there as well. So for me, if you don't know, my name is Sam, and it's been over a year since I've preached in front of people, and I'm very much a people preacher, so who knows what's going to happen. I have a sermon thing here, but we'll see what happens, and so that's that, and, and as Pastor Tom mentioned, a very big happy Mother's Day to all our moms, my wife, uh, we got the privilege of becoming parents, and just seeing what entails being a mother, it's uh, I could not do it, and I think Mother's Day should be every day. Uh, the amount of love and care that moms pour in and sacrifice for families, it's unparalleled. And at the same time, um, just know I don't want it to be a token statement that just passes by. So I want to reemphasize what Pastor Tom mentioned, which is that celebratory days uh, are often emotionally complex. I think growing up, I didn't realize that. I thought it was very simple in 2D. It's Happy Mother's Day, honor the moms. But I think the more you live life, the more you realize celebratory days are very complex. Uh, my wife and Angela, we were taking a walk on Friday, and our hearts just started breaking because we were excited that we get to have a, a son in Ezra, but we were like, oh, man, there's a lot of cause for pain that we didn't realize maybe a decade ago because we were just immature. But, you know, in our church alone, and this church, this list is not exhaustive. I'm positive there are people who, who don't have moms or, or those that uh, have lost their moms or those who have strained relationships with their moms or those who simply just miss their moms like me. It's been a while since I saw my mom. Uh, some who, again, as Pastor Tom mentioned, are, are trying really hard to become moms, and for whatever reason, it's just not working out. Uh, and maybe even some moms, without us knowing, that have lost their children. That's just in a crowd like this. It's just bound to be there. And as Angela and I were are thinking and praying of a few specific individuals that we know personally that fit these categories, it, it was funny because we were walking. I was holding Ezra, and the Angela just started crying out of nowhere. I thought she was kidding. I was like, are you serious right now? <laughs> and then she was just like crying. And Ezra was so confused because he thought I did something to our mom, right? But she was crying. And I, that brought me a, a strange sense of encouragement as her husband because I was like, wow, that shows that she really cares. And so when we say let's empathize, that's not just a formality we're saying. I do think on this day as people are taking pictures and celebrating, I do think Christ is nearest to those who are hurting. He's probably sitting with those who are in pain. And I do hope that we can become a church that's not about formalities or just doing what we think we should do, but genuinely that we, uh, we empathize and we walk and we weep with those who are weeping. And so, yeah, this has nothing to do with the message, but that, that was just something that over the weekend my, my family's heart was, was leaning towards. And so if you know someone who could personally use a word of encouragement or prayer, I encourage you, don't just leave it at a thought, but reach out to them. Let them know you're thinking about them. Let them know you're praying for them. And, and they know. They know either if it's a, a formality or if you're genuinely having the heart of Christ to care for those people. And so please do do that. And again, happy Mother's Day to everyone here. With that being said, uh, if you are joining for us the first time, whether online or in person, and I see a lot of new faces, so very thankful you could join us. Uh, we've been going through a long series now through the book of Genesis for a few months. 
And even though we're meeting in person and it could be an exciting new day, we're just going to continue the series because we just want to be faithful and we think that God's word always has something relevant to say. And we've been more recently closely journeying with a complex character named Jacob. Now, obviously, I don't want you to just dive in without knowing what's going on. And so, so far in Jacob's story, we have seen Jacob has run away from home. He's gone to his uncle Laban's house. Why? Because he deceptively stole his older brother Esau's birthright, which naturally angered him. And in the midst of staying at his uncle Laban's house, we saw it's been, he's worked a total of 14 years to earn the right to marry two of his two wives, two daughters, the older being Leah, and then the younger, the one he wanted in the first place being Rachel. And in chapter 29, we see this whole ordeal where they have a bunch of children, which are really relevant for the rest of Scripture. And in our text today, Jacob finally decides, I think it's time to go home. It's time to go back to my homeland of Canaan. So if you have your Bibles or your programs, let's turn to Genesis chapter 30, verse 25. I'm going to be reading for us from verse 25 to 32. Again, chapter 30, verse 25 through 32. But have your Bibles in hand if you can, because I'm going to be referencing all over 30 and 31. And so... For our purpose of uh, starting us off, we'll read Genesis chapter 30, verse 25 through 32. It's the reading of God's word. As soon as Rachel had borne Joseph, Jacob said to Laban, Send me away that I may go to my own home and country. Give me my wives and my children for whom I have served you that I may go, for you know the service that I have given you. But Laban said to him, If I have found favor in your sight, I have learned by divination that the Lord has blessed me because of you. Name your wages and I will give it. Jacob said to him, you yourself know how I have served you and how your livestock has fared with me. For you had little before I came and it has increased abundantly and the Lord has blessed you wherever I turned. But now when shall I provide for my own household also? He said, what shall I give you? Jacob said, you shall not give me anything if you do this for me. I will again pasture your flock and keep it. Let me pass through all your flock today, removing from it every speckled and spotted sheep and every black lamb, and the spotted and speckled among the goats, and they shall be my wages. Amen. This is the reading of God's word. What an interesting text. I think one thing we can all agree on is that this long season of quarantine, well over a year now, has forced us all to take a much deeper look on our friendships and on our relationships. I'm not sure if it's just because being quarantined inevitably has caused us maybe to become more introspective and more reflective than we're used to, or if the nature of social isolation has revealed a lot of things that otherwise may not have come to surface. But I've talked to numerous people who share with me that during COVID, their top struggle was loneliness and wrestling with this question that they really never had to ask before, which is, man, who's really, who are my friends? Like, who are actually my friends? Who am I actually close to? Who considers me close to them? And I think it's totally understandable to ask that in this season because in a way, what COVID has done is all the formalities and the habitual and questioned rhythms of social interaction that we're used to, they were all kind of stripped away overnight if you think about it, right? And on a Sunday, for example, whereas before, when people would hang out after service, you would just kind of invite everybody. And that was, maybe some of it was out of relationship, but if we're honest, a lot of that was just out of obligation because they're standing around and what are you supposed to do? But what COVID did with the natural restrictions and the caution that came with it is it reduced those obligatory groups and hangouts to be more selective in nature, didn't they? That it's more about who are you actually really close to who fits the mold of this small reduced size. A clear example of this has been weddings. 
I know from firsthand experience, the most stressful process for me and my wife was making a wedding guest list. So you know what we ended up doing? We didn't want to deal with that intense process of what qualifies or disqualifies a person. So we just invited everybody. And I totally regret it because now we look back at pictures like, why do we invite that person? I don't know. But we didn't have to deal with that. At least before COVID, you have that auction and luxury. But during COVID and after, couples have to really hone in on, wow, let's really think about our relationships. Let's really think, who are we close to? And assess these relationships. What are they actually made of? All that is to say, it is a very profound thing to put your relationship with someone to the test in order to see what is this relationship actually made of. And it's often in times of adversity where the nature of a relationship is going to be revealed and it's going to be exposed. You know, with that in mind, we're going to look at our text today through the angles of three specific characters. And like I just said, we're going to look at the nature of their faith and relationship with God which progressively becomes more revealed as this story progresses in chapter 31. Now, whether you've been a Christian for a while, and I think a lot of you have, I recognize a lot of faces, or you may not be a Christian. Maybe you're just checking the faith out. Maybe you heard about it. Maybe you're a nominal Christian. My hope is as we study this text that you can also assess your own faith and relationship with God in light of these characters, whether you're Christian or not. So to preview, if you've been joining us for a couple weeks now, you'll know these characters. You should be familiar the three characters we're going to look at are number one, Laban, number two, Rachel, and then lastly, Jacob himself. The first character, Laban, he has what I would call a utilitarian approach to faith and relationships. Or to put it in more common terms, he has a as long as it benefits me approach to faith and relationships. You know, one of the side hobbies I know a few people picked up during COVID and quarantine because they had nothing better to do was they downloaded this amazing app called OfferUp. I don't know if you guys heard of it before. A good friend of mine in the church introduced me to it. And basically what OfferUp is, is a much safer version of Craigslist where you can list personal items to just people in the community, people all around the world that you want to sell. And I was skeptical at first, so I listed an old desk and some old chairs that I would have donated anyways. And just know for me, I'm personally the type I would rather donate items to the goodwill, not out of my goodwill, but because of convenience, <laughs> because I'm lazy. But man, after those items sold and I got like 40 bucks from things I would have gladly given away, I have to confess, something happened to me. <laughs> something happened where my eyes changed and everything in the house had dollar signs on them. Yeah, my wife will tell you, I wanted to sell the most random stuff. It would literally be like a banana peel. I'm like, you think someone will buy this? What if it's like a dollar? Literally ridiculous things like that. And I started to list all these random things. Why? Because this desire to make a profit overtook me on anything and everything that I saw. Now, for me personally, I'm just, that's, not my, that's just not my DNA. So that only lasted for like a month. But I'm sure we all know people like that. Or maybe you are like that yourself where everything in life is gauged through the paradigm of profit potential and the benefit that it can bring to you. I remember in junior high, fun fact, this was my junior high. And so when I was in eighth grade, I'm sitting where a lot of you guys were sitting. Some evil stuff happened in these locker rooms, right? So bad memories that the Lord has perched from my mind. But there was always that friend in my friend group where he would go to Costco and back then he would buy a pack of a very popular candy called Airheads. I don't know if you guys know what that is. And you know what you would do? is he would buy a cheap pack and he would sell them for a quarter each. And this guy's a wise guy because in our eyes we're thinking, wow, it's so cheap, just a quarter. And he was thinking, I am making a profit off all my friends because it adds up to be much more than what it actually costs. 
And one th it's one thing to do that with candy, but I would see this guy and the progression it would take where not only would it start with candy, but it would scale up to bigger items. Like he would flip shoes. He would flip more expensive items. And the scariest part is this morphed into he started to view and use people in that way. That I would literally see before my eyes, he would cultivate and invest in relationships primarily based on utility and how those relationships could benefit him. Scary, scary thing. And what I am describing to you right now is what I would call a utilitarian approach to life and relationships. And that is exactly how I would describe the character of Laban. Let me show you why based on our text. The text starts with Jacob making a very reasonable request to his uncle Laban to say, let me take my wives, my kids, my family, and go back to the land of Canaan, my home. Why? Because he has faithfully fulfilled the 14-year contract to work with him. He's been nothing but a faithful son-in-law and a worker. But look how Laban responds. He doesn't say, yes, well done, you should return home, or good job, it's about time. But verse 27, it says, but Laban said to him, if I have found favor in your sight, I have learned by divination that the Lord has blessed me because of you. Name your wages and I will give it. Laban basically says, but Jacob, my son, I've been so blessed because of you. And don't misunderstand. He doesn't mean that he is blessed by Jacob himself. He is blessed by the wealth and the prosperity that has come as a result of Jacob's presence in his life. That's what he's talking about. And so he tells him, I can't lose you. I'll pay you whatever you want. Please stay, not because he cares for Jacob, not because he cares for Leah and Rachel, his daughters, but because he cares for his cash cow and his profitable good luck charm in Jacob. Laban is a very deceptive, potentially slimy guy, if you really see him for who he is. He plays the part of a loving father and a caring employer very, very well. But there is sufficient evidence in the text that everything Laban does is for the ultimate end of personal profit and benefit. And he is willing to use anything, even anyone, whether it's his own children or calling upon different gods to reach that end. For example, as we were reading it, you might think, oh, what an obscure text. One clear we say, way we see this is this deal that Laban and Jacob make. So Laban, his, his plan works. Jacob says, fine, I'll stay longer. And from the 14 years, he actually ends up staying another six years, so 20 years in total. And Jacob says, here's the deal I'll make with you. Give me a proportionally tiny part ownership of your flock. Back then, wealth was synonymous with your flock. How much cattle you had, how much goats and sheep you had. And so here's what Jacob says. Give me all the abnormal part of your flock, the striped, the spotted goats, the black lambs. Basically, these are abnormal, and Jacob is willingly giving himself the short end of the stick. Let me use a very, very elementary example. It'd be like if we had a bag of Skittles, and I said, you know, here's the deal. You can have all the colors in the bag, just give me the yellow ones. And we all know there's only like one-fifth of the bag is yellow, and usually people don't like the yellow. Although my wife corrected me and said she loved the yellow, so my illustration fell on its head. But most people, including me, we don't really like the yellow ones. And so that's the deal that's going on here. And it would have been shady enough for Laban to agree on such a lopsided deal. But he actually reveals his self-serving utilitarian character even further. Because in verse 34 to 36, it says, not only does he make the deal, Laban then makes it a point. He's going to separate the flock himself because he doesn't trust Jacob. 
and he separates their flocks three days distance to make sure that he gives himself the economic upper hand from his son Jacob. I wonder if any of us can relate to Laban and his approach to faith and relationships. Where your relationships, whether with God or with people, and I would argue scripture ties the two together often for the Christian, are ultimately based on how they benefit you. Now, obviously, at first glance, I don't think anyone here, after I described him, are thinking, I'm going to name my son Laban. No one wants to associate with a character like him. We want to distance ourselves from them like him. But can I share two symptoms or tests that might reveal that we are a lot more like Laban than we care to admit? Number one, I please do assess yourself in your relationship with God and others in this way. Number one, if you have a utilitarian approach to faith and relationships, you will have an extremely difficult time rejoicing when other people are either doing better than you or they're getting the things that you want. Symptom number one. Where do we see this in the text? Remember, every implication is that Laban was totally content and happy with the deal that was made. He was totally fine. In fact, he probably loved the fact that Jacob agreed to a deal. Why? Because he was confident and he presumed that he would be the primary beneficiary. But do you know what happens? Going back to the Skittles example, basically imagine after we make the Skittles deal, for some reason, every Skittles bag after that that we open is 90% yellow. That's literally what happens. Now later we find out it's God's providence. God is prospering Jacob. And so God blesses Jacob. And so this never happens. But for some reason, the, the flock starts producing a proportionately abnormal amount of striped spotted goats that's disproportionate. And here's the thing. It's not like Laban wasn't getting his portion, but Jacob was getting more. And as a result, chapter 31, verse 2 tells us, Jacob saw that Laban did not regard him with favor as before. Laban's attitude towards Jacob turns sour, not because Jacob did anything, but simply because Jacob starts to have more than him. Jacob technically did nothing wrong. And so the first symptom and test that you might be more utilitarian towards God and people than you like to admit is if you simply cannot celebrate and if you find yourself actually getting angry or bitter or envious when others prosper around you, particularly if they are prospering in the thing that you want. Symptom number one. A second symptom is this. If you have a utilitarian approach to faith and relationships, you will have a very hard time maintaining close relationships. In the end, it is actually a very sad ending for Laban because he ends up with broken relationships with his son. He ends up with broken relationships with his daughters. And the text paints the picture of a man who really doesn't have genuine relationships. And here's why. Laban didn't actually love people. Laban used people. Laban didn't genuinely love or worship God. He used God. In other words, the end result of Laban's utilitarian approach to faith and relationship was this. He becomes an envious, bitter, isolated, lonely man. And the application for us is, can I briefly challenge us to ask that tough question? Over this past year, where the church has not been able to gather, where you can have been in secret sins, where there's been a lack of community and accountability and connection, which is vital to the body of Christ, if you're honest, have you become a more bitter envious and isolated person over this past year? When is the last time you genuinely rejoiced over someone else's blessing? Where it's even on your radar 
When's the last time you reached out to someone, not because of something they can offer you, but simply to love them, to check in with them? And spiritually speaking, has your relationship with God run dry because you simply don't get much out of him these days? You guys know what I'm talking about. I'll be the first to admit, virtual worship and Zoom are not life-giving substitutes. Amen? I never want to Zoom worship again, if possible. And so they are not life-giving substitutes. You are justified in feeling that way, that the gathered church like we are now, that is the way the church should be praising God and hearing from his word. But let me tell you this. Zoom worship is a better substitute than not doing anything at all. True or false? Why? Because even if you don't get much out of a Zoom worship, God is still worthy of your worship of your Sabbath devotion to him to set aside a puny hour during your busy week to show that even if I don't get much from God, he is worthy of me. So if your devotion to God has gone from zero or 100 to zero rather in this season, it may be revealing something about the nature of your relationship with God. And so Laban is often, unfortunately, a lot like us, especially in this season. The second character we'll look at is the character of Rachel, and she has what I would call a diversified faith. Diversified faith. One of the things I enjoyed learning more about during COVID after my short stint of being a sourdough baker. Shout out to all my bakers out there, right? I was a, I was a professional sourdough baker for like two months. I, I literally pulled all-nighters and then I was done, right? That's my personality. Go hard, go home, right? So after that, I learned, oh, man, I want to pick up another hobby or whatnot. So I learned how to be a better steward of finances because I'm just not really good with money. And so a, a big part of finances was for me learning the basic principles and language of investing. And one of the things you learn when it comes to investing is this unchallenged wise principle behind diversification. If you don't know what diversification is, it's basically what it sounds like. It's the principle that it is unwise to put all your eggs in one basket and to go big on just one company or on one stock because if you do that, if that crashes, you lose everything. That's the principle behind diversification. In other words, diversification literally defined, it is a risk management strategy that is built on this fundamental truth. Never put all your faith and trust in just one thing. And after hearing that, I heard stories of people legitimately neglecting this principle and they would literally end up losing all their life savings. In fact, I've heard stories of parents' friends who've done that because they just go all in and they lose everything. Why? Because they place all their faith in something or someone that ends up going bankrupt or they don't turn out to be what they thought they were. Now, why do I share this with you? Rachel, unlike Jacob, didn't necessarily grow up in a God-fearing home. That's the implication, right? Because we can deduce and infer she grew up under the discipleship of her father Laban's approach to religion, which is what? Worship what works. Worship what works. This is evidenced later because when Jacob and Laban make a covenant, while Jacob calls upon the one true God that, that his father feared, Laban calls upon three different gods. He's clearly, he believes and he serves multiple gods. However, at the same time, Rachel is not that evil or, or faithless because we can also conclude Rachel obviously knew about the one true God of Jacob, Yahweh, because, number one, you can assume Jacob taught her. But if you read the text, the reasons that Jacob gives for why they should uproot their lives and go to Canaan 
It is littered and it is full of language of Yahweh, of God, of how God has called Jacob to go back to the land of Canaan. But something interesting happens as they're packing up to leave in verse 19 of chapter 31. It says, Laban had gone to shear his sheep, so they're planning to leave while Laban is away. And Rachel stole her father's household gods. Rachel stole her father's household gods. Now the Hebrew word for household gods is this word terapim. They were very common in the ancient Near East. Almost every house had them. Imagine very basic small idols and figures, right? If you need a visual, uh, today's modern age, literally if you go in a kid's room and you see figures of Buzz Lightyear and Barbie or whatnot, that's literally what it was back in the day except they were idols. They were like literally many gods. And we know that they were literally like small figures because in verse 34 later, we're told that Rachel literally is able to fit the terapim in her camel's saddle to hide them from her father. So they are small. They are literally like figures. And I said literally like 10 times right now. Now, why did Rachel secretly steal the family idols? Here's the likely reason. Rachel is practicing spiritual diversification. That's what she's doing. It's not that she doesn't believe in Jacob's God, but she is simply covering all her bases. She's practicing risk management. She was probably thinking, you know, what if Yahweh isn't all that he says he is? Jacob sure makes it sound like he's great, but I don't know. Or what if he doesn't come through when we need him? Or what if these other Terapim household gods have other powers or other benefits that Yahweh, the God of Jacob, does not? Now let me make it crystal clear, okay, because I think I painted diversification in a positive light. It is one thing to diversify financially for security. It is an altogether different thing to diversify relationally, particularly with somebody that you love. For example, my beautiful wife, Angela. What would you say if when I married her, I told her, by the way, Angela, my bride, I have a backup wife. Just in case. You just never know. Just in case things don't work out. Hope that's okay with you because diversification, it is wise. <laughs> I'm covering all my bases. It's not that I don't trust you. I just want to manage my risk because who knows what will happen. That's why personally for me, I've kind of always scratched my head, head a bit. This is my personal thought on the idea of like prenuptial agreements or prenups. If you don't know what a prenup is, it's basically like a legally written contract that you and your spouse agree upon that if and when you divorce, here's how we're going to split our stuff. And the world says, good, good, do that. It is a wise thing to do to protect your assets. Now, this is my personal opinion. But I would have felt so awkward if I was looking Angela in the eye on our marriage day, saying my wedding vows with all my heart, saying I commit and vow to love you in sickness and in health until death do us part, knowing that a day earlier we signed another agreement saying, but if we split up 50-50, just, it just makes no sense to me. Now, I don't want to trivialize the difficulties and hardships that marriage can and will bring. And I actually even think the Bible accounts for situations that warrant the painful decision of divorce, but that's not what I'm referring to here. I am talking about a conscious, low-key, but very real backup plan in the midst of being in relationship with and worshiping God. That is what Rachel was doing. Now, obviously, today, we don't have physical household idols. At least, I don't think we do. If I came to your house and you had those, we would, I'd probably talk to you. <laughs> but in our modern context, we definitely have spiritual ones. 
And just to clarify, in case you don't know, what is an idol? An idol can be literally anything. And more often than not, and in my own personal life, the most dangerous idols are never bad things. They are very, very good things. One way to define an idol, anything that you place your trust and your affection in more than God. To bring you what you're supposed to get from God, which is worth, fulfillment, satisfaction, and joy. That means an idol can be money, relationships, health, reputation, popularity, good works, career, sex, a home, the idea of being debt-free. It can literally be anything. And what's so scary about idols, especially today, is at least back then, they were literal physical figures that you can point to and say, dude, that's an idol. <laughs> Stop worshiping it. Today in our day and age, idols are much more subtle, hidden deep within our hearts. And I would also say in the culture of our homes. See, that's the real challenge of faith. Our faith in God is not designed or supposed to be part of a pie chart, visualize this here, that is shared with other pieces of the pie and other sources of security and fulfillment and provision. Why? Because if Genesis is not showing you progressively, God is big enough, God is trustworthy enough, and he is faithful enough to dominate the entire pie. The God of Scripture is a whole pie type of God. And he is the one being and the one relationship that where diversification, it is not wisdom, it is foolishness, according to Scripture. God is worthy of going all in for. And he has proven that in his faithfulness to the undeserving Jacob, then to the undeserving Isaac, and now to the undeserving Jacob, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So what does spiritual diversification look like today? Well, I think on the most basic sense, as cliche as it sounds, I think it could look like spending little to no time in God's life-giving word to guide you, to fill you, to sustain you, while you spend almost all your time on social media, on Instagram, on TikTok for your fulfillment and for your identity. Again, those things are not evil in themselves, but if that is where you are getting your source of life and joy, something is off. It can look like compromise in marriage or in parenting. To want to just be comfortable and to fit in with the surrounding culture without seriously considering God's design and intention for you as a spouse or as a parent. Or in my own life as I was preparing this message, I was so rebuked. Like I said, I've been really into, you know, building security and finance. And so for me, what this spiritual diversification looks like is spending hours of research and going on YouTube and preparing for retirement and stressing over how to accumulate wealth while neglecting to pray that God would be the provider for my family, that God would provide for our needs, that God who cares for the lilies and the birds, how much more valuable am I to him without my YouTubing and my late night studying? And what we have seen so far through Laban and Rachel are these two truths about God. If you're Christian or not, you need to understand these things about the God of Jacob. Number one, the God of Jacob will not be a means to your end. That's not who he is. That's not what he does. And number two, the God of Jacob will not be one of many options in your life. That's not who he is. That's not what he does. Which leads to the third character, Jacob himself. And ironically, he has what I would call a stumbling yet growing faith. You see, by this point in his story, it is clear as day, Jacob is a messed up guy. 
Very, very messed up individual. It, it boggles our minds that God would have a covenant promise go through a guy like this. In fact, it can be argued that the entire mess that they found themselves in, all the genesis of that was from Jacob. His deception, his sin, his stealing. So to put it nicely, Jacob is a stumbling saint. And right off the bat, isn't this ironically such an encouragement for us sitting here today? Because if you're listening today and you feel like you've made mistakes in your life, whether in the past or even as, as recent as the drive over here in the morning or last night or five minutes ago while you're listening to this message, you can take heart because you're in good company with our brother Old Testament saint Jacob. Do you remember up to this point, Jacob, he's essentially a spiritual fugitive. He's on the run, right? He escaped to his uncle's place and he ran away from his covenant calling in Canaan. He was running away in fear from the wrath of his older brother Esau. But through his total of 20 years of being away from home, starting with the significant encounter he has with God at Bethel, which was preached on a couple weeks ago, and while working patiently under Laban, there's three redeeming spiritual things about Jacob that actually shows that through it all he is growing in his faith that I want to quickly highlight for us today. Number one, it's Jacob is a man who made a spiritual decision. What do I mean by that? Back in chapter 28, God meets Jacob in a dream. And after that moment, something changes for Jacob. God goes from just being a God to being Jacob's God. He says, you're not just the God of Isaac, you're not just the God of my father or God of my family. You are now my Lord and you are my Savior. And what God does is he always point back, points back to that and he says, Jacob, I'm the God of Bethel. You remember that place where you made that decision and you vowed to me you're going to follow me? I'm that God, the place where you made the decision. And this is why whenever someone wants to become a member at our church, we always ask them about their testimony. Not to see how holy they are or how good of a Christian they are, but two simple things. Do they understand the biblical gospel? How does one get saved by grace and grace alone? And two, at what general point in your life did you decide to follow Jesus? Where God changed from being just a Christian God to being your personal Lord and Savior. And personally, this is where I think our church is walking on a limp a little bit. Pastor Tom and I, we talk about this all the time. It pains me that our church can't do baptisms right now. Because that's the power of baptism. Baptism is the visual picture and representation of the spiritual decision that every Christian makes. That though I will stumble and fall many, many times infinitely again, I have decided on this day to follow Jesus with my heart through it all. Baptism is the public declaration before others that in Christ, I don't live for myself anymore. I live for God. And so in the same way that watching new couples make wedding vows reminds married couples, of, oh man, honey, you remember the day when we made our wedding vows and it revitalizes you to want to serve and love? That's the same thing that baptism does. It witnesses fellow believers, reminds us of our first love in Jesus, and reminds us of the decision we also made, if you are genuinely Christian, to follow Jesus. And this decision serves as not only the starting point, but also the foundation of spiritual growth, I would argue, especially when times get tough. So do you recall that you made a decision to follow Jesus? The second thing we see in Jacob is a spiritual desire, very quickly. He clearly has a desire, broken as he is, sinful as he is. Unlike Laban and Rachel, Jacob's main motive 
in wanting to go home in the first place is he desires to obey God. That underneath it all, he has a spiritual desire. And third and lastly, Jacob runs in a spiritual direction. Remember, the narrative of Jacob was that he was a runaway. He ran away from his home in Canaan. He ran away from his issues and problems and sins that he created. But in our text today, we see that he begins the process of recalibrating the trajectory and direction of his life to now face back to where God is calling him to, which is where? Go back home. Now, you do have to dig a little deep to extract these three things out of Jacob because he still very much is a sinful mess. But that's where, in light of those three things, three quick words of application to close. Number one, I think for some of us, we need to be reminded of the decision we made to follow Jesus. However long ago that might have been. You might have been a Christian for one year, five years, ten years, twenty years. You might have been a Christian for a week. It doesn't matter. One thing that ties us all together is the birth of the Christian life is when you make a decision. I've decided I'm going I'm to follow Jesus. It's going to be a messy, broken, stumbling path. But I did make that decision. If you did not make that decision, that's a whole different story. But I will argue and say right now we're entering an era of the church just cultural Christianity, just because everyone else does it, that's just not going to fly anymore. So I challenge and encourage you, think back to when the gospel message first clicked for you. Where you were convicted of your sin, of your need for a savior, and the grace of God changed from just this weird word and this weird concept to something amazing and beautiful. And that that same God who rescued you and called you then, and for Jacob was the God of Bethel, for others of you maybe it was the God of that youth retreat or the God of that trip you went to or the God of that day when you had a terrible breakup or experience, whatever that might be, that is the same God that calls you today after a long pandemic of quarantine. And some of us need to remember that decision. For others of us, we need to recalibrate our desires. I think for a lot of us, myself included, one of the biggest downfalls of this past year, spiritually speaking, it has completely neutralized and stifled the spiritual desires that we should have as Christians. To what? To love God. To love his people. To want to please God above all else. To ask yourself, have your daily desires and motivations become increasingly carnal and fleshly and selfish over the past year where there's really no indication that what you want is any different from the person who doesn't have the Holy Spirit next to you. That's a problem, according to Scripture. That even broken, sinful Jacob at least has glimmers of the des desire that the Holy Spirit is working in him. And for myself and for all of us, I'm sure some of us need to pray that God would search our hearts honestly and give us a renewed desire for spiritual things. Everybody wants security. Everybody wants community. Everybody wants connection. You know what everybody doesn't want? To glorify God. The salvation of their neighbors. To serve and love when you get nothing in return. Those are innately spiritual things. Do we desire those things? And last but not least for others of us, I think like Jacob, we may be in a season where we've been running away from God. I think some of us are running away because you might hide it with other things, but the reality is you feel dirty. <laughs> You feel unworthy. When I, when I just bring up the word Zoom, you feel guilty before God. There's a reason why all our cameras are off. I get it, right? 
So we feel dirty and worthy. Maybe it's a certain sin or a certain pattern of sin that we know isn't pleasing to God. So even though we're sitting here, we're actually spiritually running away. And that's the reality. And I don't need to look at you because God through his word looks at you. He knows. It's the spirit who speaks through the word. He convicts and he cuts through and he knows your intentions. He knows what's going on. So whatever it might be, call it apathy. Call it, uh, I don't feel it. Call it bad weather. In the end of the day, you might just be running. And others of us, maybe we're running away from what we know God wants us to do and calls us to do, but we're afraid or unwilling to do it. Maybe it's a, a big decision coming up. Maybe it's reconciling a certain relationship, whatever that might be. But can I comfort today, if you are on the run from God, to shift your direction back to him? Because that's the God of Jacob. So let me remind us of three simple statements that I think encapsulate the gospel in its truest form from our text the God of Jacob, he is not willing to be a means to your end because then you're God. Second, the God of Jacob is not willing to be one of many options because then he is not powerful. But thirdly, the one thing the God of Jacob is willing to do more than anything else and that he loves to do, especially if you're not a Christian here today and you need someone to run to, is he is more than willing to love, to forgive, and to protect stumbling and still sinful saints who at some point in their broken past and life made the frail decision to follow Jesus, to have the desire to worship him, and to live and move in the direction of his presence. And so there's going to be plenty of time for reflection as we celebrate the Lord's Supper. So let me pray for us.